On the night of Friday, April the 5th this year, in Las Vegas, Nevada, I slept with US President Donald Trump. Not, I hasten to add, in the same bed, but in the same hotel, spending eight hours snugly tucked up inside the protective bubble around the most powerful man in the world. A sleepover in a postcode that felt like both simultaneously the safest and most dangerous square mile on Earth, unwittingly a part of a logistical and security operation that the 3,200 members of the Secret Service had been planning for months. 48 hours before the arrival of my new housemate, an advanced team began to sweep and secure the hotel and a mile in each direction. Streets were blocked off with concrete barricades, manholes lifted, checked, and then welded shut. 24 hours before the Donald arrived, magnetometers, x-ray scanners, car bomb inspection mirrors, and sniffer dogs were deployed at every entrance. The lobby, elevators, and hallways all fell under the humorless gaze of men with serious guns and even more severe haircuts. Explosive dogs enthusiastically swept the entire hotel, and the Secret Service technical team brought in layers of ballistic glass to reinforce the windows on the 64th floor presidential suite. My rather thinner glazing on the 36th floor looked out across the Las Vegas Strip and down onto the rooftop of the adjacent fashion show mall. What was, on a normal day, a view of metal sheeting and air conditioning units was transformed 12 hours before Donald's arrival to bristle with snipers, lookouts, radar, and missile defense systems. Three hours before the president's arrival, a separate team of Secret Service agents and Air Force medics locked down three local accident and emergency units. A sitting US president is never more than 10 minutes from a fully prepped, fully secured operating theater. At 10.25 p.m. exactly, as Air Force One landed at McCarran Airport, all other aircraft were diverted away. During Trump's visit, the only traffic in the airspace above him was the constant hum of police and military helicopters. The drive from the airport to my hotel is approximately five miles. Trump's cavalcade of cars stretched over half that distance, 2.6 miles. 16 motorbikes to the front, 16 at the rear. Eight police cars, 16 SUVs, two tank-like limousines, a main and a decoy. Three ambulances, eight coaches of staff, and four coaches of reporters. All that alongside a host of highly classified specialist rescue vehicles, communication vehicles, and communication jamming vehicles. The Secret Service team protecting Mogul, that's Trump's code name, at the RON or Remain Overnight location received him at the hotel at 10.50 p.m. And all of this so Mr. Trump could get room service, watch some Fox News, and send a few tweets. Mr. Trump departed our hotel at 10 a.m. the next morning to give a speech just five minutes down the Las Vegas Strip at a different hotel, which had to go itself through the same intense security operation, but by a separate team of agents. Trump left Vegas at 12.50, was back in the White House by 8 p.m. local time. By then, in Las Vegas, all evidence of those months of preparation and days uh, of planning had been dismantled and removed. 
The Secret Service are making final preparations as I speak for President Trump to arrive in London tomorrow. And similar security operations are being undertaken across the world, wherever presidents, prime ministers, monarchs and world leaders live, travel or gather. And today, at the start of Advent, we're reminded that we play a part in just such a preparation. We are called to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, that expression from Isaiah 40 is not an obscure theological wink or an insider's hat tip to the future ministry of John the Baptist, but it was, in fact, a common, rather well-understood, everyday expression of those extraordinary preparations that must be made ahead of a visiting king. They might not have been men with earpieces or crowds with Make America Great Again hats, but without proper roads or communications, the practical preparations to receive a royal party meant at times filling not just potholes, but indeed moving entire mountains. And news of the visit had to be spread from person to person to make sure that the whole population knew who was coming and everyone was ready to receive them. Around 60 years BC, the Greek historian Diodorus of Sicily wrote an account of the marches of Semiramis, queen of Assyria, into Media and Persia. Coming to the Zarsean mountain, which, extending many furlongs and being full of craggy precipices and deep hollows, could not be passed without taking a great compass about. Being desirous of leaving an everlasting memorial of herself, as well as of shortening the way, she ordered the precipices to be digged down, and the hollows to be filled up. And at a great expense, she made a shorter and more expeditious road, which to this day is called from her the road to Semiramis. Afterwards, she went into Persia and all the other countries of Asia, subject to her dominion. And wherever she went, she ordered the mountains and precipices to be leveled, raised causeways in the plain country, and at great expense, made the ways passable. Sadly, Semiramis, the queen of infrastructure, died around 800 BC, or we could have invited her for a royal visit and got ourselves maybe a third runway at Heathrow or perhaps HS2. But Advent is a time of preparation for a royal visit, not just because Christmas is coming, but because Christ is coming again. History has been leading up to something. God has been preparing his people, preparing the way for a king. Peter writes in verse 7, the end of all things is near. History is almost complete. All the major events in God's plan for salvation have already happened. The calling of Abraham and his descendants, God's demonstration of salvation and rescue in Exodus, the judgment in exile, the rule and line of kings stretching throughout history, every prophecy about a coming Messiah, all converging in a son of David, in the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, the spread of the gospel, and the growth of the church over the whole world. In this time of political campaigning, a lot of promises are made that none of us really trusts. But God, throughout history, has kept all his promises, and every event in his plan has happened except one. The one, all the rest we're leading to, the one we are called to prepare for. Everything is ready for one last great event, Christ's second advent. I have three Christmas dinners booked in my diary this week, but the judgment of the world is the next date marked on God's 
calendar. The end of all things, says Peter, is now at hand. And he gives us four very clear, very practical instructions how we can ensure that we are preparing our hearts, preparing our churches, preparing our communities, and preparing our world to be ready for the visit of the coming king. First, Peter says we are to be alert in prayer. Verse 7, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Or in other translations, be alert and sober-minded. Clear-minded or alert so that nothing may distract us from preparing prayerfully. Self-controlled or sober-minded, meaning we take seriously how we pray and let nothing deter us from making prayerful preparation our priority. We are inspired to pray by the knowledge that Christ is coming. We are equipped to pray not by our own ability or strength, but by the power of God. But the act of prayer, the discipline of prayer, requires that we do not allow ourselves to become distracted. So how do we react, knowing the end is real and the end is near? Fear, panic, building a bunker, buying canned goods... Peter says the only logical and effective response is to pray and that prayer requires maintaining a strong and clear mind and to be deliberate in prayer, to be deliberate in our choices and deliberate about how we live. Christmas is a good example of the way that noise and distraction can overwhelm the true wonder and purpose of the season. Amid all the excitement and preparations, whether for this Christmas or the second coming, we must remain focused, Peter says, on our relationship with God in prayer. Secondly, Peter calls us to be proactive in our love. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. The power we have received in prayer is mediated through and distributed by our love expressed toward one another. Peter encourages us to love one another deeply and generously, specifically encouraging acts of hospitality, but also more generally declaring that we should love because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, we mustn't misinterpret Peter. He doesn't imply that all we need is love. Christianity is not just a fuzzy feeling. To forgive sins is in God's gift alone and only by his grace. But as forgiven people, people who know the love of God, we should love others without judgment. Being forgiven ourselves should help us overlook others' faults, not make us more acutely aware of them. Love is not blind, but love does accept differences. In Proverbs 10, 12, we read, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. I think our divided, angry society needs more of that love. Love not as a fickle or fleeting feeling, but the attitude of sacrificial love toward all demonstrated by Christ. To repeat a Bob Goff quote I used a few weeks ago in our evening service, Love is not a warm feeling we get when we agree with Jesus. It's who we are becoming as we follow Jesus. Thirdly, Peter calls for us to be faithful in the administration of the gifts of the Spirit. Verse 10, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. We must, he writes, faithfully ensure that the words we teach and preach are God's words and that all we do is in God's strength. 
While the Holy Spirit is God's gift to us, we must be faithful to receive his gift, administer his gift, and use his gift wisely. A spiritual gift comes purely by God's grace, and it must therefore be administered by us, treated by us, as if it remains his property. That is, we're only ever stewards of our spiritual gifts. A steward is defined as someone who serves as the manager of a household, a person who has no wealth and authority of their own, but distributes their master's wealth according to their master's will and direction. And for us, that direction comes in verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Peter implies everyone has received a gift or gifts. They're not reserved for Ray Tiju or those of us up the front. But spiritual gifts are gifts of grace given to all for the benefit of the whole fellowship, not for our own individual use, purposes, or glory. All spiritual gifts are intended to bring glory to God himself. Verse 11, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Finally, Peter says we are to be joyful, rejoicing in all circumstances. Verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter is a letter addressed to various churches in Asia Minor, but they're all suffering from extreme religious persecution. Do not be surprised, Peter writes, as if something strange is going on. Well, certainly the world must have seemed perhaps not just strange, but hostile and downright dangerous, as indeed Rome was for Peter. But in the midst of it all, Peter is reminding them that God has not lost control We are living in an imperfect, broken world. And God never said this bit, the preparation bit, would be easy. In fact, quite the opposite. The Lord warned Peter and the disciples in Matthew 16, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, We must keep in mind, Peter says, that the end of all things, God's ultimate victory, is assured and at hand. Our hope and our rejoicing does not rest in this present age of preparation and suffering, but in the ultimate triumphant return of the king. We are not to take pleasure in our pain, but reassurance in his victory. For Jesus does not leave us in Matthew 16 carrying our crosses, He goes on to finish, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. The King is coming in glory, echoed by Peter in verse 13, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The end is near. The world does not see it yet. The world does not recognize where we have come from. The world does not know where we're going. But the end is near, and the end will see God's glory revealed. We rejoice then in all things because of this one promise. The king is coming. His glory will be revealed. His victory is assured. There's an expression, almost certainly apocryphal, that the queen thinks everywhere smells like fresh paint. Because wherever she goes, teams of people have been clearing the paths, cleaning the way, and repainting the walls. Much of London smells 
like fresh paint this morning, because like it or not, Donald is coming. But more importantly, and just as surely, ready or not, Christ is coming. The king is coming, and while there's nothing we do that will change the date or time of Christ's return, we are each called not just to wait for that moment and then start cheering, but to prepare to make straight the paths, to remain alert in our prayers, to be proactive with our love, faithful in the administration of the gifts of the Spirit, and joyful, rejoicing in all circumstances. Preparing the way for the Lord is not something we outsourced long ago to John the Baptist. It's not merely remembering history, but knowing that history is leading to something, to someone. It's not anticipating a one-day celebration, but God's eternal victory over death. It's not passively waiting for something, but actively preparing the whole world to receive someone. Advent should not be limited to lighting candles or opening perforated doors on cardboard countdowns, but it is the age in which we move mountains to change the landscape of the world, to make way for the greatest royal visit in all of human history, and we are each called to help prepare the way. It is not our forgiveness, but it is our love. It's not our words, but it is our voice. It is not our gift, but it is in our hands. And it is not our victory, but the victory is our joy. Let's make straight the paths this Advent as we prepare ourselves in prayer, as we prepare our community in love, as we prepare the world by boldly sharing the good news. We rejoice in triumph, and we rejoice in tragedy. We rejoice because the Lord is coming. Amen.